0: Welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet.
1: Welcome everybody to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. I'm Gary Kernahan and I am the host for what is undoubtedly going to be one of our greatest ever shows. In fact, this is going to be the best there is. The best there was, the best there ever will be, because today we are talking about the one, the only, Brett the Hitman Hart, my hero growing up. Now before we start talking about all things about this great man, please do subscribe to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Please do check out our back catalogue and also our extra feed. They are both packed full of amazing content. Also, do check us out on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube at Suplex Retweet. Now, Brett's career is packed full of achievements. He had an in-ring career that ran from 1976 to the year 2000. He is a five-time WWF champion, a two-time Intercontinental champion, a two-time WWF, Tag Team Champion. He was a United States Champion in both WWE and WCW. He's been a WCW Champion, a WCW Tag Team Champion. He's a two-time winner of the King of the Ring. He won the Royal Rumble in 1994. He's a two-time Hall of Famer named the Excellence of Execution. And we're going to be covering Brett's career all the way up to the famous, infamous, Montreal screw job. So to talk about this legendary man, we had to put together a legendary panel. Now first, Brett. (laughs) First, Brett had some classic matches with the British Bulldog, including an absolute classic at SummerSlam in 1992. Well, tonight, just like SummerSlam 1992, we're going to try and get a career performance. Out of our version of the British Bulldog, our very own dog, the Scottish Big Dog, Alan Lucas. Alan, are you ready to leave it all out in the ring with the Hitman?
2: That's what I always leave it, mate. Always leave it. <laughs> <laughs> the bread I, I, uh, sorry, sorry, wait. I need to shake that image of Alan leaving it all in the ring. You'd
3: be so lucky, Sunshine. You'd be so lucky. <laughs>
1: Now Brett was also famous for having classic matches with all sorts of people, regardless of their ability. He had classic he's credited with having some of the best matches of Diesel, Kevin Nash's career. Well, tonight we're going to try and get a classic performance out of our Big Daddy Cool the tulip in the ESSR garden. <laughs> Do not trust this man with hotel bookings. It's Kwaku Right. First of all,
2: like, come on. You, we gotta let that go. That hotel was absolutely... Uh, uh, actually, I still can't defend that hotel. I really can
1: I just so sure. de- <laughs> You have to work hard to find a hotel that doesn't even bother with tiles. Or wallpaper in the bathroom, maybe for lino on the walls. That's the type of establishment the Quacko frequents. <laughs>
2: several, several mops on. I thought I could defend that hotel, and I, I, I just can't. I just can't. Just can't. <laughs> yeah. Guilty as charged. I'm sorry.
1: No, our final panelist is sat next to me, which makes this bit a wee bit more awkward. Now, Brett had some classic matches with his brother, or as he referred to him as quite a lot during his career, his no good rotten brother. Well, I'm joined by my no good rotten brother. It's Derek Kernahan. Hello, Gary. Our final panellist, the final member of the Heart Foundation yes. for tonight. So, guys, we're going to get started with the Hitman all the way back to his first run when he first broke in to the WWF roster in 1984. I was coming up for two years old at this point. Originally, Brett, when he came on the roster, he w- he didn't come in as Brett the Hitman Heart. He didn't come in as the Hart Foundation. Initially, he was being brought in as Brett the Cowboy Heart. Now, Alan, could you have imagined that all these years later, if that if he had become the cowboy that Brett would have gone on to have had a Hall of Fame career.
3: Not a chance, he'd probably be a stripper, grand isn't he? There's only one cowboy, and it's say, uh, Bob he <laughs> would never, he would never have happened,
1: no. I don't know if anybody's seen it, but Bob Orton's uh, famous broken arm injury is healed, finally. He was caught uh, filming him and Randy doing a TikTok dance I've with one that. of Randy's daughters yeah. in the podcast.
2: I was going to say, that guy has had the longest arm break ever. It's kind of like Gene Money here in Britain, who's had the longest pictorial injury ever, and both nipples as well, which is just weird. Oh uh, well.
1: will. when you think of famous cowboys in wrestling, you know, where, would, where would Brett rate up there with the likes of uh, Double J, Jeff Jarrett? Uh, just behind Jimmy Wang Yang, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Derry, you you might have heard the story. Brett talked about it when the the Hart Foundation got inducted into the Hall of Fame about the idea of how he he decided to after to being ribbed by the boys in the road about being a cowboy that he, he even though he was getting the big sale you know you're going to come to the ring on a horse you're going to wear the chaps you'll have the cowboy hat we're going to go down in this big style. Um, he was getting ripped by the boys. So he got to the town the next day for the for the, the show the next day and he, he chapped on the Booker, George Scott's door. And as George opened the door half asleep at one in the morning, Brett just says to him, I don't want to be a cowboy. And Scott famously says, well, if you don't want to be a cowboy, what do you want to be? What are we going to do with you? And Brett had nothing else to offer. And on the spot, came up, said, turn me heel put me with Jim Neidhart and Jimmy Hart and calls the Hart Foundation. Now, he, he, the, a month later this came to fruition, uh, this idea, but at no point did Brett tell Neidhart, who was in the midst for getting his own sort of singles run, that this was an idea he'd put forward. <laughs> if you were Neidhart, <laughs> how might you have reacted to somebody throwing this career? changing curveball at you? It could it could have been an interesting conversation,
4: definitely, for the people we have. Oh, by the way, I've set us up as a tag team now, you know, um, but looking at it, it was an absolute stroke of genius. Also, with, like you said, having Jimmy Hart there with him, who is the ultimate, who was the ultimate heel manager um, back in back in the day as well. It was, it was a match made of heaven, but I think
1: if I was Hart. I think I could be a wee bit aggrieved with Brett for doing that to, to me. <laughs> well thankfully uh, Nightheart was okay with the idea and they did go with this one and he started as started as what are your uh, stick with you in on this one, what's your thoughts of Brett Hart as a young heel? Um I've watched obviously we, we, you
4: watched all the matches like WrestleMania three when they were when there were heels um coming in as well. It was, I think Brett's just brilliant at doing either. As well, but when he was younger, you know, obviously he was a bit more, a bit more raw, should we say, than what he was obviously when he got better. But um, Brett is Brett is a heel as a he still does he still knows how to talk and you know do, do the talking, which is vitally important when you're doing it. But I was it was good, and also they put them with some good um, tag teams as well, which are which are going to talk about as well. I imagine mm-hmm. against him. Sorry.
2: My question to you two is, which one of you two are going to go to your bosses and say I no longer want to be a cowboy, I want to team up with my brother and form the Kernahan Foundation?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> of us... <this>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is,
2: is it the latter part that's the problem? <laughs> yeah, that's not going to
4: happen.
2: <laughs> well, it's either you two or Stevie, so pick.
1: Well, <laughs> oh, definitely not him. <laughs> Well, one of the reasons that Scott gave the heart, like well, when he chapped in the door, Alan at one AM, and Alan, you look, you you remind me of a man that's probably chapped in lots of hotel rooms at one in the morning. Um, but unlike, <laughs> unlike you, Brett, Brett was told um, that um, that he couldn't be a heel. He, he was, you know, he was he looked too much like a baby face. Uh, you know, that sort of, you know, he was a young guy at the time. You know, quite fresh faced. How, you know, and we're going back, you know, some time now, mm-hmm. um, how easy or difficult is it, you know, for a young, young guy to get, get, you know, especially a young, you know, good looking, you know, was isn't the most confident of people back then as well, to actually get into the groove as a heel? I just think it'd be easier than most people think. Well, it's also
3: difficult as a challenge to it, but I think it's easier to be a heel wrestler than a face especially when you're young. I mean, like you look at The Rock, for example, perfect analogy, he was a brilliant hero in the nation, and obviously became a corporate champion, he was quite, still really young. So with that needs, age, the fact that he was quite young, he's got the time to make the mistake. If it's not going to work, he's young enough and he's young and naive, so they can fix it. So I don't think it was a, a bigger risk as many people probably would think. And or as you say, obviously, he had natural charisma for it. And even later years when he had the jacket and the glasses, he was, on he was in that borderline from that grey area where you could look and go, that's a face or that's a heel. And he just carried that perfectly throughout his whole career, I thought.
1: You mentioned Brett Hutton, used look, um, and a signature part of his look was the sunglasses. And uh, an interesting story about his sunglasses, when he did put his sunglasses on the young fans, as he always did, or occasionally gave them to his mum. But Brett used to sign and date all those glasses when he put on them, so they became an even better momentum for whoever got them um but one of the reasons he started wearing sunglasses was when he was in the ring when he was cutting promos he was nervous and he thought that, you know that was a way of sort of putting a barrier up between him and the audience and help with it Quacker, you are establishing yourself as one of scotland's finest ring announcers just now and you're uh, you know the importance of you know projecting your voice, the cadence, and getting the the atmosphere right, and, mm-hmm. and you know, add into the moment. You know, t- talk us through what you know, what what's that like when you get in the ring for the first time, and what would it be like for you know a young man like Bret Hart for doing these things for the first time, especially with the, the footsteps that he was following, and he had quite a legacy to live up. To. Um, so young heel having to cut these promos which probably wouldn't you know when he went in Calgary he was one of the heroes so he's doing something entirely different now in WWF. It's
2: the I mean like when I first stepped into the ring to do ring announcing I was just like oh like I was just so nervous I mean I still get nervous every time I step into a ring because like I care so much about it, I also want to make sure that I'm doing right by the wrestlers I'm introducing because at the end of the day it's not about like me what I'm doing, it's about what I'm doing to like like it could be the tone I give to certain wrestlers like I always change up the tone, and introduce certain people to suit their character sometimes I even match their pacing of when they deliver promos. For example, Alexander Darwin McAllen, he has a very defined way of doing a promo, so I kind of try and match his tempo. And with the glasses, the a glasses that's actually quite a good trick because sometimes your eyes can give away too much of what you're thinking or what you're doing. So having a is kind of it's not like a. It, it, it just it can uh, it does two things. It can help you focus in on what you're doing and not caring about what other factors. But it can also stop other people from look, trying to fight because eyes can give away so much. So if you can create that mistake, you're you're, you're you're eliminating one other factor.
1: So, Derek, you mentioned about some of the teams that the Heart Foundation worked with, and there was all sorts of different teams. There we had the British Bulldogs, Strikeforce, the Killer Bees and so on. Um, Their first victory, first title victory came against the British Bulldogs and you mentioned WrestleMania 3 where they were part of a six-man tag match with um, Danny Davis and and their team going up against the the British Bulldogs and uh, Tito Santana. Um, that was one of the first WrestleManias we ever watched. Yeah. What's your memories of the Hart Foundation as a tag team? Well, um, this was this was peak tag team era, as
4: far as I as far as I'm concerned. I know that Alan doesn't really like tag team wrestling. However, that is brand new information. However, <laughs> 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 if I had to see some of these tag teams that we had, then I think it would honestly change change your mind on it. You know, because we've got like. Um, You know, we had the British Bulldogs, who were fantastic. Demolition, who were just probably one of my favourite tag teams as well. And obviously, um, the Rockers as well, which was one of my favourite tag teams growing up as well. So we had a number of amazing tag teams um, at the time all going for it. And the Hart Foundation were a staple of that tag team division and they were exciting. Um, Something new as well because they were different, you know, A lot of the the ones, I mean, you had a chat with this at the weekend, Gary, as well. A lot of the tag teams at that time as well, they were quite similar in terms of, you know, like the Demolition were big, hard-hitting guys Mm -hmm. as well. Strike Force were a bit high-flying, you know, when it was Rick Martell and people, Santana, they were high-flying. The Rockers were high-flyers as well, but they had something different in Brett and Nightheart where Nightheart was more the, the, you know, the... When he came in, he was firing, running and battering people, whereas Brett was more technical. You know, Brett could go up to the ropes as well and stuff like that as well. So they were totally different, but they were a great team.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I mentioned their first title victory was uh, against the British Bulldogs. They lost the title to Strikeforce uh, and then eventually turned face uh, four years after debuting in 1988. They won their second uh, title. in a match against Demolition a two out of three falls match at SummerSlam one of my memories of this match was the third fall and the the crowds just I think it was Gorilla Monsoon went the crowd went you say the crowd went bananas was, it was a great pop for it
4: cut the electricity with a knife that was a Classic, fin, uh, classic. Kind of like Derek
2: switching off the light just there. <laughs> <laughs>
4: uh,
1: it was uh, another one that gorilla, gorilla was the one that nicknamed Brett the Excellence of Execution. But one of the questions I was keen to float to you guys because the Heart Foundation, as Derek was just touching on, um, the the contrast uh, and styles between the two of them. Alan, you mentioned the presentation of the team what what makes uh what makes a great team in, in your opinion, Alan? and we, we were teasing you a moment ago for not being the greatest fan of team <laughs> wrestling, but what, what would you say? What what makes what makes a great team? What makes a team stand out to you? Um I mean looking from
3: a physical perspective, to me you should have one powerhouse and then you should have a light, more some more high flyer, more technical wrestler, so that's where the half days were perfect. Night them up so. And Bret Hart is the mind, the technical ability, but more high flying So if you put it more to Mean Quackers' generation, where you think of the Dudley boys, you know, yes, they were both quite big, but you know, Bully, or Bubba Ray, whatever you call him, Bubba we like to call by? He was the more muscle the two compared to D-Von. Um, Legend Christian as well, kind of like that. So uh, to me, that works. Um, obviously the chemistry, the fact that these two guys are also related, uh, in later life, so that natural chemistry came along as well um, and you can see that they were really happy being in each other's company and their communication, not obviously, as we know, obviously plan, things are planned in, in the moment, but just the way they communicated non verbally I think sometimes, they instinctively knew what to do, because sometimes I've watched some of the matches back to see if I can see them talking. And they're not. They know exactly what they need to do, where they need to be, and teams like that to me are pinnacle in tag team wrestling. And that's mm-hmm. why the Heart Foundation is definitely up there.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Edge and Christian, Alan, and undoubtedly they, they, they were an the amazing team. But, but they, you know, the, the ring, you know, the, the name, Edge and Christian, it's, you know, it's different. Than the Heart Foundation. The, the Dudley boys and so on, they, they didn't have a name, and actually, when they wrestled, they didn't wear sort of matching attire. So, sort of a general question to you all the look of a tag team, you know, the look of the Hart Foundation, how important when you look back at this team was that in their overall presentation? shows a sign of a, a unity, and um, you know,
4: a lot of the tag teams back then all were dressed the same, you know, like Demolition were dressed like kinky. Can you get know with a done up and stuff for that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: also, also known as Derek's Friday night attire.
4: Um, Legion of Doom had the shoulder, you the shoulder pads, <laughs> the face mask on and stuff. They had the they make it the paint on as well. Um, the nasty boys dressed the same. Strike Force were dressed the same. You know they had their sort of white they wore white pants and stuff for that. Yeah. Well. they were all dressed the same. Whereas now, like like Alan said, did, and Christian wear a fantastic. Um, tag team together but they were they were more suited to individuals it's, it's it's like what the wwe do now as well if you don't have a storyline for two people they sort of throw them together and put them into a tag team uh, whereas back British then it was, Alexander, the and <laughs> um, even even like the tag team Morrison and the Miz even though they're pals and stuff like that you don't throw them mm-hmm. together because they're not storylines for them you know but ring attire is so important and um, as well and like Alan said you know they're. They were all related, they were all in-laws, you know. Um, obviously, Brett and all my brothers, Nightheart and Davey Boy were, were in-laws to them as well. So they're all together every day. They were seeing each other all the time. They were a family
1: unit and it, you know, not bred that. I think for all the reasons that you, you guys have touched on, that's why I think the Hart Foundation are really deserving you know, as a tag team of their place in, in the Hall of Fame. Now the Hart Foundation, after WrestleMania 7, they never split up. Uh, but there was a decision for them to go and pursue different options. Um, the ta- you know, we see, we see quite a lot that to separate a tag team, there has to be a falling out and it invariably leads to a feud between the two of them. Um, Kwaku, uh, this uh, decision not to have the Hart Foundation go in that d- d- direction and have them feud with each other, good call, bad call as far as you're concerned?
2: um well when you look on hindsight and you look at the legacy that created like it's a good call maybe if i was watching at the time because i'm i've always got to like i'm looking at this from a retrospective point of view but if i can imagine myself watching it like let's say i was watching it live i would have been like oh because i'm i'm like, obviously they're of a difference, but, but if you're going to apply today's generational type thing, right, then I'm going to put down like The New Day for example, if they uh, start to go for <coughs> a singles run, although they're kind of doing that now, but that's because of injuries and whatever have you. But if they were to have that kind of single run now, then I would imagine that a lot of people would be quite upset and um, also, unless they, what, what we now know in the future, they get they get they get opportunities. They get belts, and they're not just like suddenly become um, WWE main event wrestlers. If you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Alan, do you feel cheeky looking back to think you never got that big match between Bret Hart and the Anvil? Or <laughs>
3: um, no. Um, <laughs> I feel much the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like. If you had to think about it in the last couple of years, with them going their separate ways but not to explain it's kind of technically happened, wasn't quite committed with the New Day, but you can also think of Seamus Cesaro. Although Seamus was out injured for a while, we thought or he were going to get the rivalry, and they've had matches with the been no opposition, and there's been the wee you know, fist bump, nod, still the respect there, and it's never happened, so I don't necessarily think it has to have it, and I'm glad they didn't have it, to
1: be honest. So, Brett goes from dropping the, the tag titles to the Nasty Boys uh, and that, they were actually cheated at that title because the, they got hit in the back of the head with the, the helmet. So they they dropped the titles, it was set up for a rematch, they decided not to go down that avenue. We went off uh, and we find ourselves at SummerSlam a few months later with Brett and what I would say is arguably his biggest match of his career going uh, for the Intercontinental Championship against Mr. Perfect. It's in Madison Square Garden, Derry This was a mm. time where uh, the, I think it's fair to say, the Intercontinental title meant more than what it potentially means now. How would you describe how important was the Intercontinental title back? Uh, in nineteen ninety one. Um the intercontinental
4: I, I I spoke of this when we done the wrestling eras and uh, I when I sort of picked the you know the WWF then the Intercontinental title was it was a perfect platform for someone to go from having the Intercontinental for a push up, having the Intercontinental for a while and then move on to challenging for the for the heavyweight title. Um, it was it was vitally important whereas now I feel like it gets Passed a lot to significance of it Sort of died away a lot And then it sort of Pulled back a wee bit Um, And then it sort of I think it's fell away again But um, It was a massive Massive deal Um, And that match as well Was just
1: What a match Alan if memory Serves me right You What I I think Was it yourself That hosted our show On The Greatest Wrestlers Never to be World Champion Yeah Yeah Yeah. Yeah. And For for me Mr Perfect Would be in The running but for that debate as well. Quite an uh, unfortunately ironic name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, you know, if you're wanting to make a star out of somebody, you can't really do much wrong by putting them in the ring That's and putting amazing. them over Mr. Perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, guys, sort of over to over. Just a general question, sort of thoughts and memories of this, this match, this SummerSlam this is one of my favourite matches um,
4: ever um, it had everything that I wanted at the time Mr Perfect was a fantastic um was a fantastic heel you know he was a champ he was swagger and he could he could pull off a match any match he could make anybody look but not that no, he needed to with Brett obviously but he could make anybody look amazing he was just a fantastic um, wrestler and then having him against Brett who was sort of coming up now he's had his tag team sort of run he's making a name for himself as a as a solo wrestler and it was just
1: had uh, everything that I needed at the match and it was such a good match as well. Mm-hmm. There's some comparisons, modern day comparisons to to Dolph Ziggler and, you know, both technically very sound wrestlers I think inevitably because they, you know, they both have that sort of curly blonde hair. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of his, one of Dolph's strengths is his ability to sell and it was interesting asking you guys, uh, you know, Alan, uh, the, the ability to sell and get, you know, a move over, it, you know, many people argue it's a lost art. Uh, what's, what's yours in itself, take on that?
3: Well, it's definitely, it is a lost art, I mean, it's the entertainment factor, you know, the selling, uh, you know, it makes you actually go, whole oh, like, you know, you, you actually start to feel it, you feel the emotion, the pain of the person you're watching. And it's so rare to see now, I mean, you talk about Dolph Ziggler, I think the only other person that's kind of probably owned WWE, they kind of still is up at that level, is like AJ Styles. Um, it's so rare, but I do think like you're talking about selling, Mr. Perfect is perfect at it. There, there's get better at it in my opinion, ever. He's the pinnacle, and if anyone wants to learn how to sell, that's who you go and watch.
1: Yeah. For me, this is the although it's Brett's third title in the WWE. I would say this was his second crowning moment. I think the first one I would argue was that match time the previous year when they won the tag title over Demolition in a year later, we're getting this huge pop in Madison Square Garden of Brett becoming the number one end of champion and going over a big, you know a big star in the specific and then this is an era again that you didn't get big stars going against one another that often um, Brett's uh, title run he held the Intercontinental Championship through uh, to just before the Royal Rumble and he was to lose the title in a rather heated angle with the Mounty with the with the Mounty shock stick which led to a match at the Royal Rumble between the Mounty and Rowdy Roddy Piper stepping in so Mountie's the champion now he picked it up at a house show because of the shenanigans uh, Piper wins the Intercontinental Championship his first singles title in WWF and then we're off to Wrestlemania 8 with Bret Hart versus Rowdy Roddy Piper um, where does this you know where, where does that sort of matchup fall in the category and the, the sort of listing of dream matches that people could have had you know, if or, where, where does that sit for you guys in terms
4: of early 90s wrestling it's right up there you know two guys who were massively popular um, in, the, in the WWF at the time it was it was, um, it was amazing um, the, can I guess say something on the Mounty was the ultimate heel then you know he was nasty he was <laughs> He was, he would cheat. He would do everything. He was brilliant. What he was fantastic for it, and he was he was perfect in bringing this all together um, as well.
1: But that was Piper versus Brett was just like wow. Alan, um, the match at WrestleMania Eight was Rowdy Roddy Piper's first ever pinfall defeat in WWF. What what message did that send? That it was Bret Hart that was the man to inflict that. Pit- pit that's stone.
3: a that's a passing of the torch, you know. You know, we, we talk about how like sort of the now, this generation, maybe sort of Quack and I generation, sort of late nineties, early two thousands. Taker was the guy to put you over back NEC to be Piper, mm. and the fact that Piper chose Bret as the one to be the first person to beat him. One, two, three in the ring. It just kind of shows the belief that Piper had in him. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it also shows the belief they had in him backstage, but my man obviously seen in him and whoever else is back there. So it, it, it shows that he became the chosen one. He, he was the, the 90s chosen one, if you want to call it that. And yeah, that's, I think, is possibly, I would say, in his whole career, actually his second biggest achievement. Mm
1: hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean it's hard hard to argue that point. Um and we know that Piper was very particular and very protective about who he put over there's there's a reason that he never put over Hulk Hogan, one, two, three. <laughs> um Brett was some hold... man, some man <laughs> <laughs> Brett was to hold that title through to Uh, an event which holds a special place in the heart I think of British wrestling fans It was SummerSlam at Wembley Arena sorry, Wembley Stadium, sorry where he would take on the British Bulldog and um, interesting to note just before we got to that that match, the Brits would defend the Intercontinental Championship on an episode of Wrestling Challenge uh, and the first ever ladder match the WWF had at the time against a young Sean Michaels a name that we'll probably hear a few more mention a few more times as we talk about the career of Bret Hart.
2: Oh, whatever uh, happened there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, that is Shawn Michaels face turn, as it turns out, to have been when he threw Marty through that. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, what a bizarre week it's been! Thank <laughs> you. Know, <laughs> how would you for, You know, Cuacu and Alan We we were joking earlier on. We went to. Uh, takeover Blackpool, which was the third ever takeover event in the UK, so we got a chance to experience what was a big event in the history of British wrestling. What you what the SummerSlam 1992 meaning? Could you imagine if oh. that happened? You know, if we had been able to be in Wembley Stadium that day, you know, what? How would you say what? 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 summer
2: slam 92 mean to british wrestling fans? i mean it's one of the big four especially it's the biggest part of the summer and um, not to mention it's also very trusting in the open british weather at this time um, and <laughs> that's another aspect that's very trusting but um, <laughs> we, we'd be screaming we'd be screaming we'd be screaming for like i, I mean it's all great that we've got NXT uk and we've had an NXT TakeOver event in London and stuff, but um, the the amount of times we'd be screaming for a mania to happen, and whether it's in what likely candidate will be London because London is kind of like the subcultural epicentre of the UK where everyone can get to London directly because of the way every transport is structured here. And so that would... it would just be amazing if just having. I mean, I would take a SummerSlam, I'll take a Survivor Series, I'll definitely take a Royal Rumble because of the big four, that's my favourite one personally. Yeah, I like the pop ceremony of Mania, but i'm Rumble, oh, I would lose my nut and the Trillip Hotel will get serious bookings from you.
1: <laughs> well, we've given them lots of promotion in this show. Uh, <laughs> it's so, one more the show. Uh, do you think that we will ever see a Big Four pay-per-view in the UK in our lifetime, Kwaku? Yes or no? <sighs> I'm gonna say no. Alan?
3: Yes. I
1: think it's more likely to either be a summer slam or Survivor Series. Derek, yes no. or no? I'd probably be there in a no as well. Mm-hmm. I, think, um, I think that day's past us. Um Brett described this match against the British Bulldog as the fav- his favourite match of his career. Um, could you imagine an Intercontinental Championship match main eventing a Big Four pay-per-view in today's uh, Either,
2: no, no. It can only oh. to be like if it's going to be a championship, it's got to be either the women's or the like one of the heavyweight belts. Otherwise, if it's a main event, it's got to be like a proper heated rivalry or something significant. Like, well, what we thought was going to be the retirement of Roman Reigns or uh, Roman Reigns' retirement of the Undertaker, for example. Or take an NXT example, Champa and Gargano, because that was huge. It's, it's got to be something like that. If they wanted to put a belt on a huge feud like that, it should really be for one of the main belts, if you like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Brett's uh, interaction with the Intercontinental Championship started at SummerSlam 1991, it finished at SummerSlam 1992. Uh, so he lost the Intercontinental Championship in August 1992, and then, much to I think everybody's surprise, in October 1992, Bret won his first WWF Championship by defeating Ric Flair at a house show. Um, had Brett, question I was keen to ask: Folk had Bret done enough at this point to establish himself as? Being a world champion material, Derek, come to you first. Um, I don't think so at this point. No, I
4: think he should. Have, I think there could have been a bit a um, bit of time, you know, building him up again. You know, after losing the title to Bulldog, um, it was very, very quick. Um, however, you know what he done with the belt still at that time was still was still good. But however, it was it was still very quick to put
1: it on him. Yeah. Alan, what's, what's your thoughts? We've been running over Brett's career, so we're t- you know, we had him debuting in the WWF in 1984 tag team, he's been in the Continental title picture for a year, and now he's now become the world champion. What, that trajectory, that career path that he's been on, is that for you sound like the CV of somebody that's a credible world champion at that point?
3: It does. It sounds like the proper stepping stones to get there, but I do agree with Derek. It was too early for him, for him jump, from losing the Intercontinental to into the World ch- Title in the space of like, three months. It's far too short, and I think that was kind of shown the fact that the way he won the title wasn't on a weekly episode of Raw, or it wasn't a pay per view. It was a house show. I think it tainted it a wee bit because he wasn't in front of the television audience that like everyone assumed it would be or hoped it would be so I think that kind of showing yeah we'll give you it, we'll see how you go on it but I kind of look this way so uh, but that's why I think uh, it, 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 from a, if you look at as you said already going up with the titles, yes it was the right step that way but Timing-wise, just, I just agree with it, it was far too soon. I'd have maybe gave it another three months on top of that, get it throughout the Rumble time, and I'd have had him win the Rumble. That would have been the timeline for me, personally.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've gone, we've not even gone to the point where Brett has had an unsuccessful goal at being the World Champion. He's just exactly. got you know first crack at it. Kwaku, the winning the title at house, the World Championship at a house show is something that we don't see today, no. and you know, uh, a number of uh, us, uh, we were in Glasgow, Scotland, we, uh, one of the last big events that WWE put here was a Raw House show at the Hydro. And there were title matches that night. I don't think anybody really believed that no. this was going to happen. I mean, when you hear that the world title changed hands in 1992 at this Random House show, and we're in October, Survivor Series is in November. Mm-hmm. As well. What does that mean? What
2: does it's, that I mean, work? it's huge. I mean, even like going back um, when AJ Styles won the WWE Championship from Jundi Mahal, and that was in Manchester at a SmackDown event, even that was a huge surprise. And that's an actual SmackDown show, just that because it was a, when, a, it's a SmackDown show, and B, it was away from. The North, uh, nor- Northern America. So it, it's, it's, it's just, it was just seen as wild, up, and the, the way the crowd popped showed that that they just were not expecting that, and wow, they did it! So to even do it on a house show is, yeah, uh, you just wouldn't. The, the basically the only title I would expect to maybe change odds out of how short is 24-7 t- title these days. <laughs> yeah, it
1: goes without saying, doesn't it? Yeah.
4: <laughs> more important, more significant is then they only had the four, four pay-per-views. Four pay-per-views. It's not like you get one every week now that they do these days. Do mm-hmm. yeah. You know, it was, it was yeah. four main
1: pay-per-views a year, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, so that title run that started in October lasted about five months. Uh it lasted up to WrestleMania 9 at Caesars Palace and it included title defences at Saturday night's main event against Papa Shango. Papa Shango! Uh, he, oh, man. <laughs> the Survivor Series against Shawn Michaels, as him again, and at the Royal Rumble against Razor Ramon, I think was undefeated at that time. So it was a relatively short, reign and Alan, you you touched on potentially the purpose of it was maybe to establish Brett as a main event player because you know, then he was a former world champion. So when he then became world champion again, you know, it was a way of just trying on him to see maybe a wee bit of a rhetorical question, guys. But uh, did it succeed? Did it help make you know that short title run? Did it help make Brett? now more a credible world champion
2: come the end of it yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean especially the it's a quite a unique circumstance and obviously the people you've beaten to get up to that level so it kind of sticks out and, and, and let's be honest at that time he still he had still had a huge buy-in for people whether he was heel or face or whatever he was doing he still had that buy-in so yeah it all contributed to why he's a two-time Hall of Famer, why we're here talking about him now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are other things like the screwdriver job that everyone likes to conspiratise or whatever they want to do. Maybe that's something we should leave to David Campbell to
1: talk about his conspiracy <laughs> theories, I don't know. <laughs> and um it's a great point, Kwaku, because Brett would say uh, later, that he always felt that his title reigns were cut short just as they were picking up. Mm. Uh, now he dropped the title at WrestleMania 9 to Yokozuna, uh, who was again at that point was uh, un- unbeaten, and uh, Yoko immediately dropped the title to Hulk Hogan. I think it was 38 seconds. Um, mm. Now there's accusations that Hogan didn't see Brett as a credible champion, and actively went out of his way to avoid putting Brett over and we've seen a debate, and we'll talk about King of the Rings shortly where Hogan did drop the title to Yokozuna. Did WWF miss an opportunity here? Should WWF have gone with Hogan and Brett and Hogan putting Brett over? At the time, you've got to remember
4: Hogan's, you know, the biggest guy in sports entertainment at this time and having him put someone like Brett over would have would have done good. I don't think Brett necessarily, you know, it, it, it turns out the end he, he didn't really need it, you know, because of what he'd done. But I think at that time it would have been a massive, a massive statement for them to do.
1: Yeah, Alan, what do you think? Should the WWF miss an opportunity here? Should they have forced Hogan's hand to say actually, if you want to be, you know, be in the main event picture here, this is the destination we're going to. Um, um, you on your back, looking at this lights with Bret Hart or new or star going over.
3: I'm kind of on the fence because I can see from the storyline perspective this is the new guy for going to go with him. But it was headling news if Hulk Hogan ever lost. You know, it actually made the news. It made the papers, and it was, it was a huge shock. And I said he was the fact that he was, you know. Well, like I've seen a rock, Austin, Bret Hart, Michael's always tried to get to the heel. which is seen that too far ahead, um, so I'm kind of, I can't really say yes or no because I can see both reasons for why, mm-hmm. but yeah. my personally, just from my own perspective I would have liked to have seen it, but I can understand the both reasons of why he didn't and why he could have.
1: I could have a slightly different version of the question for you. If you were the if you were Vince McMahon and you had the choice of booking uh, Hogan and Yokozuna or Hogan and Brett, what, what what road are you going down? Honestly, um to
2: spice it up a triple threat.
1: <laughs> and you didn't get triple threat back then, you? I know. Okay. <laughs> I, I know,
2: I'm way ahead there. I mean imagine that. Um, I mean, if I was a Teddy Long, if I had my Teddy Long hat on, oh. I'd find another player, and make it a tag team match, and there must be
1: a winner. But in, in I terms of the had a tag match, Quackus, <laughs> that's around that tag match. There
0: you go. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. You could versus Brand Hogan.
3: Yes,
2: yes. Cheating, dude. One ton of fun. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of fun. Uh, but in terms of this quest, I'll, I would, go back, probably Hogan and Brett, uh, if I had my Vince McMahon hot, hat on, because I, that's, that's, that's what I would see him more booking. I'd probably just have Yokozuna coming out and squashing them both at the end of it.
4: Yeah, I can I can see why he went with the Yokozuna Hogan angle though because it was like an almost a remake of Andre Hogan at free you know the big guy the huge yeah, guy yeah
2: yeah suppose
4: and america's <laughs> you know America superstar Hulk Hogan you know
1: yeah we're um, going to move on uh, and into a break but we mentioned the edge that is Viscera just there so if you were to read up on Bret Hart's uh, read up Bret Hart on. Uh, Wikipedia. There are lots of different quotes about Bret Hart and then there's a, this one which says, Viscera commented he was the best WWF champion of all time. I mean as far as international rapport, it's like he's a god. So the what? What? You know, does does it get any higher than that? So, what we're <laughs> going to, we're going to stop for a short break there. We hope you'll you know come back and, and join us. The moment and what we'll pick up from then is what followed next. What followed Brett's first one with the WWF title. We'll be back with you in a couple of minutes.
4: Hello my name's Jack Graham Hello my name's Scott McLeod And I'm David Hockney You can catch us hosting one of the greatest shows in the history of podcasting, Saturday Draft Live You can tune in every Saturday to see who on the podcast has the best chance
3: of winning the latest season of our Fantasy Draft As always you can catch Saturday Draft Live on the suplex retweet extra feed on your preferred podcasting platform
0: Can't you see this is what all these people want? family values. That's what they want. They've had us fighting for years. It's all these people right here that had all of us fighting. What are you fighting for? For what? To satisfy a bunch of people that don't know the first thing about family values? Listen to me. I'm asking you, I need you. I need you. Yeah, USA. You're talking about a country that's based its entire history on brother against brother. They got talk shows all over this country of families airing out their family problems because they all hate each other. And that's what they've done. They've taken our family and turned us into a bunch of haters. They've turned you against me. We fought. We fought like two men in Wembley Stadium. And after you won, I hugged you. We came back to America. They turned us against each other. And listen to you and me. Look what they've done to you and me. I was the one that got you to the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, you laughed. That's it, man. they push you and they push you and they push you they push me and they push us against each other and they've driven this wedge between the whole family you know they what they do to diana huh Owen, oh, i've known you since you're a baby i trust you for school I dressed you for school every day. I was the one that made sure you made the school bus. And how many times, how many times did I take you? Remember St. Michael's School and that teacher, that teacher was picking on you. I was only 13 years old, I went to that school and I set the teacher straight. Who was there for you more times than I was? Who was the one that talked to you even didn't become a wrestler? There's only two people in the whole family that really excelled in wrestling. It was you and me, and they turned us against each other. They turned me against my own sister, Diana. Because Americans don't understand family. Don't give a damn about family. Owen Davy. I'm asking you for your help. Because I need you. Owen. Owen, look me in the eye. Nobody was there for you more times than I was. I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear me loud and clear. And I don't care about these people. Not anymore. Boy, I love you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweets. Welcome back everyone we are talking about the excellence of execution Brett the Hitman Hart I'm Gary and I'm still joined with Alan Kwaku and Derek. And just before the break we were talking about Brett's first run with the title we're now going to move on to talk about what followed and what followed was the King of the Ring the first King of the Ring as a pay-per-view there had been King of the Rings before uh, and this King of the Ring in 1993, which Brett would go on to win. He would go on and secure victories over Razor Ramon, Mr. Perfect, and Bam Bam Bigelow in the final. After winning the King of the Ring, Brett would be attacked by Jerry the King Lawler, which would start a feud between the two of them. Guys, I was keen to ask if this was, if you believe the the rumours and the gossip this was a consolation prize for Brett because he wasn't going to be challenging Hulk Hogan for the WWF Championship. In terms of a consolation prize, where does winning this version of the King of the Ring rank? Alan, has come to you first in on this one.
3: i really high. Um, when we've done previous shows on the King of the Ring, I always refer to it as, as the unofficial fifth major. You know, that was... It's right below the big four, it was always one of the big pinnacle people views always look forward to. And for him to be the first ever champion, I mean, nobody can ever take it away from it. he's the first. And in some cases, sometimes the first is the best of all time. We've had other examples where we've seen, you know, pay-per-views done or matches done and they've just never reached the same height as the first one. And I'd say, as a consolation prize, there's not many better than winning the first ever time in the ring.
1: Yeah. I mean, the I read the list of names of people that he beat on his way to win in the final. He never never beat one of them with the sharpshooter, and that was a, a purpose, a, a tactic that was p- suggested by Pat Parson. Kwaku, you know, there's a pretty impressive list of, of people to beat on your way to becoming King of the Ring. Mm, yeah, like, he...
2: That we really set that presence of what King of the Ring should be about. I mean, when going a bit back about what you were saying about King of the Ring back then and now, the difference like now is that well, first of all, not having a pay per view on its own kind of devalues it just a wee bit more. Also, the uh, same could be said about uh, what would you rather win these days, the Money in the Bank or King of the Ring, because you know the Money in the Bank leads to a bigger opportunity that could be used at a opportunity where you're more likely to win the belt, i.e. doing that edge and doing that kind of thing, so that's where King of the Ring kind of comes in, like that's the difference between then and now, nowadays.
1: After the the match you mentioned, uh, after he beat Bam Bam Bigelow, he gets attacked by Jerry the King Lawler and sets up uh, a very long-running feud with with Jerry Lawler. Uh, Another long-running feud at this time got started, and it was with Owen Hart. Uh, and Owen would cost Brett in some matches. Uh, they had some title matches with Yokozuna, yeah. uh, and that's when we seen the Owen's heel turn come into play. And legendary that you know, the heel turn came into play properly at uh, the Royal Rumble, yeah. following year when Brett and Owen was there in their efforts to become the tag team champions with the Quebecers. So, Jerry, the king of all, Owen Hart. What's your memories and reflections of these, both incredibly long-running feuds that Brett would go on to have. I remember the feud with, with, with
4: Jerry Lawler was very personal, mm-hmm. you know, he was, he was, Jerry was ripping into Stu and Helen Hartley, he, he was giving it big licks, which was something that we didn't really see a lot of then, you know, bringing in other family members and stuff, like bringing in, particularly ripping his mum and dad, um, as he did as well, so that got very personal. Um, and it was good because Jerry was obviously the king at the time as well and Bret was the actual king of the ring. So it, it, it fitted in well, I think, um, in terms of doing it. Um, the feud with Owen was... I love it. I think that's one let us... I think when we done the um, opening shows of WrestleMania, that's my favourite um, opening WrestleMania match was Owen versus Bret. Um, absolutely fantastic. I love seeing... The good thing about them like, like, like we mentioned, Alan mentioned um, in the first half of the show when we were talking about these guys have wrestled together for, for years, you know, they're family, mm-hmm. so they know how to work each other incredibly well and it just it just worked, everything about it worked and Owen's, um, out of the two of them, it had to be Owen, they went heel because mm-hmm. Owen was a brilliant heel
1: <laughs> as well, absolutely amazing heel. He absolutely was. Another thing that would happen at this time is that, that Brett would win the Royal Rumble, but he didn't win the Royal Rumble outright. He was uh, the first ever drawn Royal Rumble with uh, Lex Luger. Um, now, uh, you know, at this time, Lex Luger, you know, WWF was getting right behind Lex. We'd seen the Lex Express and, you know, all sorts of things. We seen him slamming Okazuna on, on the, the warship um so but by this point it started to look like wwf was starting to hedge its bets with lex luger not quite convinced it was working and you know this was one of the points brett would make uh, later on is that when their shiny new toy didn't work they came back came back to him yeah um so we. This is probably why WWF went with this draw. And if you were going to go for a draw, you know, to try and get. And when you watch the video back, their feet land absolutely perfectly. I can't think of many wrestlers that you could trust to do that maneuver and get the feet hitting the the floor exactly at the same time than, than Bret Hart. My, my question to you guys was going to be was this the right choice to make going with the draw or should WWF at that point have been brave enough to say you know what this Lex Luger thing is not working we're going to go with Brett from Mania 10. Uh, Alan let's come to you first on this one. Um, I'm
3: ke- again I'm kind of on the fence because I can see why maybe they wanted to hedge the bets for Luger because Luger had the typical world champions physique—he was ripped, he was big, he was strong, tanned. He had everything. And if you're going to put that guy over, you're going to need to put him over with somebody they can trust. And Brett was also somebody they can trust. And if you're going to go over the Hitman, it shows they have faith in you. But at the same time, Brett Senior, seen Senior, done it. He's done everything else. So why wouldn't he just let him go and do it? Um, so I kind of see both point. I mean, there's loads of rumours, there's rumours that just Brett not being afraid to speak his mind, hinted on in some cases. Mm. Um, but I'm really kind of fancy. I can see both sides of it. If I'm honest.
1: You have just articulated probably what was going through the WWF booking committee at the time, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> not and I didn't know about where to go. Eric, um, you know, if you were you you're a fantasy booking this, if you you. Had you time. Would you have gone with Brett? as the sole winner of the Royal Rumble? Uh, yes. Now if you had done that, you would have never got the match that you were referring to at WrestleMania 10 because yeah, Bret right. would have went on to fight Yoko yeah. and we would have never got Bret and Owen at that opening yeah, that match. And you, was it you that argued that that was the greatest yeah. opening match in WrestleMania history and who yeah. went for a famous <laughs> Daniel Bryan yeah. match? Um, I almost won actually, didn't
2: you? Oh no, I won! Because I even yeah. convinced uh, Dave Hockney Meltzer, that's his other name, that it was actually a good match, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he spoke of the match, like 25 times longer than the actual match, I know. match as well. I, a, actually, that's show, I actually look back at it. We actually talked about that
1: match the longest of them all. Well, we're not doing that today. We're here to talk oh, about it. <laughs> uh, and as far as I'm concerned, this is the greatest match of, match of WrestleMania history. Yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um So Brett's second uh, title victory would come at WrestleMania 10. So we touched on he opened up the show, but in a losing effort to own heart mm-hmm. and then finished the show, bookend the show, by um, uh, winning the World Championship against Sho Kazuna And, um... Uh, was off, you know, off to the races. He had his East number one contender already lined up there with that uh, great storytelling with Owen Hart there. In between, he helped establish Diesel uh, as a, a challenger for the world title. They had a, a, a phys- very physical match at the King of the Ring. Bret in 1993 and 1994 was named by Pro Wrestling Illustrated as the greatest wrestler of both of those years. I think what we started to see here is Bret's ability to have great matches with all sorts of people really shining out. So we, we've gone from Yokozuna uh, to Diesel, you know, very different guys. Yoko was a big man, but could move. Diesel has, um, more let's say he has less great matches <laughs> than, than he's had uh, bad matches very diplomatic the, there. Um, <laughs> thank you thank you <laughs> so, what's your you know what's your thoughts on, at this point what we're seeing then is Brett the performer and that ability to have great matches with all sorts of people Quacko, how important is that in your world champion oh
2: big time big time because um it, it just shows that uh, well one thing is is that uh championship reign can be quite stale if you are not able to back it up with ele- it uh, there's as in certain defenses there's always that expectation where oh he's they're retaining they're retaining or whatever so you can lose that focus whereas if you're able to have great matches with all sorts of different people hence why when we talk about title reigns these days with certain wrestlers where they have the belts, then you, you talk about oh, what about that defence, what about that one, and it's with different people. It's just it, it, it just makes that reign more memorable. So if you can back that up, then yeah, you're in good stead.
1: Alan, Brett would hold the title this time through to Survivor Series of, of the same year where he would drop the title to Bob Backlund. Of all people in a submissions match, the first one for the WWF title at this time, but this wasn't just the normal submission match. Somebody had to throw the till in, so Owen Hart was in Backlund's corner. It was supposed to be the British Bulldog in Brett's corner, but Bulldog gets taken out during the match, and it turns out to be Brett's mum uh, who gets convinced by Owen to throw the title in. Brett and Backlund wrestled for somewhere near half an hour. Uh, this one, so it was a you know it was a long long match. Uh, I was interested in your thoughts on Bob Backlund being the person chosen to end Bret's Rain, only for Backlund to drop the title a couple of days later in less than one minute to Diesel. What, so two questions for you is what do you think about Bob Backlund being the one chosen to do it, and does the what happened with Backlund make Brett look weak? Because Diesel's beaten man in a minute that Brett couldn't beat in thirty, in 30 minutes. So two questions, yeah, I mean, from Alan.
3: <laughs> um, Backlund is a legend because he's got was it the third or fourth longest title reign in history. Or you know, he, so he's he's been proven the to top level. But Backlund in this stage was coming to the end of his career. He was in the twilight of the years. Um, so I, I think it was quite. I don't want to say disrespectful, but it was poor to have your your champion lose in thirty minutes to you know somebody's coming towards the end of the career. For that person, I think it was I don't even think it was a minute, it was like eight seconds or so for that <laughs> Diesel beat him in. It was it was so quick and it kinda defeats of the purpose of everything that Brett had done with these, this rival you're talking about he's had these great matches with Diesel and he's beaten he's beaten Diesel but then Diesel just goes and annihilates the guy who beats him in seconds. It just it's not the best booking it's not the best taste in my opinion. And I feel I can understand why you'd have a bit of taste in his mouth over it. Yeah.
1: Derek, what what's uh, your take
4: on it? It doesn't make any sense to me um, dropping it to um, like Alan said, would he sort of just came out of nowhere. He wasn't even less at the time, wasn't before yeah, He came I've... away for about 11 years yeah. came back at the Royal Rumble. Came back at the Royal Rumble, then takes the belt off of Brett in a 30-minute match. And then also the way that he lost it to Diesel as well is just... It's ridiculous. You know, it's sort of... Why not have Brett put Diesel over like he'd done the last few, the other few matches that they had together? Mm. Um, as well, making it this one that, you know, that Diesel did... Did win it? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And it left me. I remember this when we were when we were younger, Gary as well. Like, and we were like, "What? What's, what? What's happened here? Yeah. You know, you know what's happened? How can they let the, you know, you know the best thing in the company at that time, you know, lose to Bob Backlund? Yeah, Quacko,
1: It's sort of same same question. Just to complete the circle, what? Do you, what's your thoughts on this turn of events? Um, well, I'm not. I'm
2: not unfortunately I'm not too clued up on it, so I've been bouncing on what you guys have been saying. I do I do know some bits about Bob Backlund and, and the because I mean, I mean, going back when I used to watch when I was watching like road and you would see different legends come out, and there was always like that kind of pop for Bob Backlund, and especially the way he would walk. And I was just think, why are they so eager for this guy? And then I kind of I kind of just saw a couple of matches. Um, I can see what everyone's coming from on this, maybe it's because like, if you look at the physiques of them, two of them, in yeah. their peaks, it was very, very, very different. And at that time, let's be honest and let's be real, um, having that kind of bigger gap, it just had that more dominance about it, so it was a bit, looking back, it's a bit of a bizarre situation there.
1: Yeah, we would have to wait a year now for Brett to actually get his third world title again at Survivor Series, so a year after losing it, you get, he beats Diesel um, to become the, the WWF Champion and sets up a, a heel-term Diesel in the process, but in between, Brett was kept busy, uh, he got a win back against Bob Backlund at WrestleMania 11, which Brett incidentally says was one of his worst pay-per-view matches of his career. And then he went on to, to face all sorts of characters in between. Uh, we had Isaac Yankum, mm-hmm. Jerry Lawler and John Pierre Feet, And that legendary f- feud with the pirate was set up because <laughs> he stole Brett's leather jacket. So uh, the question, guys, is, you know, this is not, exactly a who's who of wrestling in terms of characters. We would know that Isaac Yankel would go on to have a Hall of Fame career as Kane, but at this point as the demented dentist. Um you know he's not exactly cooking cooking with gas at this point. My question to you guys is, uh you know, Brett's lost the title Survivor series to Bob Backlund. He's then feuding with this cavalcade of characters. How effective is you know, and with the benefit of hindsight, how effective is that at keeping Brett in the spotlight? Because this is a series, these aren't even upper mid-card feuds, these are lower mid-card feuds. Uh, Derek, let's come to
4: you first with this one. Um, it's not very effective at all in my in, in my opinion. I mean, it's sorta of cool for some of these guys to say, i did a feud with Brett Hart and stuff like that, but for Brett, um, it, does, it done nothing for him during that time. Um, you know, I don't think it. I don't think it done anything. Fair enough, he was getting matches on a regular basis, but
1: mm-hmm. no,
4: like like you said, Gary, they're they lower mid carders
1: yeah.
4: as well. Why not give him, you know, some of the matches against some of the big guys about then as well? You know, I guess at that point, they probably didn't want them. I guess they maybe didn't want them get beat against some of these big guys that they were. You know, some of these other guys that they were bringing through. But mm-hmm. I think they could have. They could have definitely made a a storyline in there with someone up and coming who was coming in or else like a like a a Shawn Michaels who was making his way in the division then Um, you know obviously they did have a shoot um, not long after that but
1: you know someone like that they could have they could have picked someone Alan do you have fond memories of seeing Isaac Yankum DDS in the ring no no Uh, Kane yes Isaac Yankum no absolutely not what do you think of this sort of uh, like this sort of Barry of the Week format that Brett kind of went through at this period. I'm trying to think of a modern day equivalent. This would be like, uh, <sighs> you know, um, uh, NGF would title.
2: would they be there and Maxwell Jacob Freeman and AEW? Yeah, he's kind of like your pants around villain at the moment.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking that. I'm just thinking, you know, you can imagine them, um, you know, Seth dropping the title as he did, and then going on and feuding with them. Um, you know, like a debut in No Way, Jose. Uh, it's not really going to sell tickets, is it? You, I mean, some of these guys, Brett had a great match with Hakushi, but I'm not sure folk were were back. Because then if you're building up as they were for Brett, as it looks like, you know, Brett to become world champion again, this is not, that. you know, we, we talked about earlier on, the King of the Ring beating a who's who. This is not a who's who, <laughs> who's who list along the way. Brett would hold uh, on to the title through to WrestleMania 12, where he would drop it to Shawn Michaels in an Ironman match. Uh, you know, This Man match is sort of a bit polarising amongst wrestling fans. Some some view it as an absolute classic. Others view it as a snooze fest. Um, what's your thoughts on this WrestleMania 12 main event, guys? Kwaku, come to you first in on this one this time. Is it a classic or is it a snooze fest? Um,
2: again, I had the chance of retrospectively watching, so that that see, because I have a thing about yes, you can watch things retrospectively, but you got to question yourself if you were in that moment, then would your perspective be different? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, it goes back to our debate on the debating chamber on Attitude Era matches. You can't go back and compare it to now, um, in terms of the matches itself. When I did watch it, um, I can't honestly, I can see some glimmers, some, like there was some great in there, but the way it's held up, that I couldn't see it as being like a huge classic, if you get what I mean. But I wouldn't I would say being a snooze fest is a bit of a disrespect.
1: Alan, if you were going back as, as all of us do, and you know, you pull up something from the WWE network to watch, could you imagine yourself uh, or have you actually have you done it? Have you put on WrestleMania twelve and put on the Iron Man match? I have watched it, but you're
3: gonna talk about him Ham and Michaels, it's gonna be the Montreal screwdriver for me. That's the one I'm always going to think about, or even going back earlier, maybe the ladder match when it's more raw between the two of them. It's not really. i match It's. I hold Kylie in uh, my I don't, uh, It's something I can watch. It's also something I can put in the background and going to the dishes or something. yeah, and just kind of hear in the background. That, I'm kind of like that with it.
1: I think um, you know these guys. There's no doubt that they 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 worked their ass off that night. Uh, uh, but for me, uh, you know, an Ironman match is flawed, uh, especially a 60 minute one, is actually there's not not a lot going to happen. The, the main the main thing is the last, what happens right at the end. And one of my favorite Ironman matches is the one that came a few years later between The uh, Rock and Triple H, where we had, was it 5-4 or something like that? It was much more action to it than, than this one. Um, Brett would take some time off after this WrestleMania and uh, uh, would return uh, at Survivor Series, although he still did some of the international shows in between because he was so popular. But as we got close to the Survivor Series this year, he started getting called out by Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he would have a return match against, his return match would be against Stone Cold Steve Austin at the Survivor Series, which started one of the legendary feuds. Um, a feud which you know, Brett would score victory that night we would then have the Royal Rumble in San Antonio where Brett should have won but Austin was eliminated nobody's seen Austin he then snuck back in the ring and eliminated Brett uh, and others and Austin would be declared the winner of the Royal Rumble and at that point was a, a seed was planted for a match at WrestleMania 13 What's led to the heel turn? So my question, guys, is how important were these two men to one another in this period that we we're about to see? Uh, how important, Derek Stone Steve Austin, Bret Hart? It's it's one of the
4: things that you think about when
1: you think of Bret Hart. But
4: for me, I think about um, like individual matches. I think about the Mr. Perfect match. I think about the Bulldog match. And one of the matches I think about is this as well because it's so important because it leads the way for, like you said, the double heel turn that happened, which was one thing that totally blew everybody's minds at that point. They were maybe yeah. thinking, right, one of them might turn, but not the two of them um, as well. It was just, it was amazing. And I've used Austin's, um, the, the podcast he does, um, the Smoking Guns, one he done it with, the, the one he done with Brett was just amazing. Yeah. Um, really good insight into the two of them and how they worked before it and how they were desperate to work with each other mm-hmm. during that time as well. And it just fitted in perfectly.
1: Yeah. Alan, what's your memories of that match at WrestleMania 13, the Brett Austin match? A lot
3: of blood. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a blood a blood. lot of blood. <laughs> yeah, a lot of blood. It was the first time I remember ever really seen blood in wrestling. Um, it was a brilliant match. Um, obviously, like, Shamrock made I think it was his WWF debut yeah. as a special yeah. guest referee. Um, and just for your topic, obviously, I was like, to anyone, Austin would be the pinnacle, the top rivalry that to anyone ever had in a career. And this is obviously, to me, his second best. So it takes him to the show of Michael's to pick it. Uh, but what a feud it was, the match itself was unbelievable. Um, it's still regarded to, to this day as one of the best WrestleMania matches ever. Um, and it's to me, it's a masterclass on absolutely every level.
1: Yeah. Quacku, um have you ever seen have you, a double heel turn done better than this one? Um
2: back and back, I can't, I can't really think, to be honest, I don't think so, yeah. to be frank with you, no. Um, I think of one it's up there, maybe not
3: as good as it, but up there, Rock and Hogan
2: at 18. Uh, yeah. Mm, Yeah I suppose, I mean well Not saying this is good but it's it's mm -hmm. not there No I mean well the circumstances and like obviously how big that match was and just how into it the crowd were as well was a big thing that really helped elevate uh, those double turns as well so um, yeah but I, I honestly can't think I mean I can think of like heel turns that were just epic but double
1: turns. Mm. They happen few and far between, don't they? I think probably the most recent example is maybe the, uh, oh god, there was, I was going to start saying champer Gargano but that wasn't a, really a double turn. There was one point along the way that it started to go but um, it never went full pelt. Mm. So I'll maybe leave that thought there. After Brett's heel turn, um, the, the, actually the seats were planted for that heel turn really following his return. Um, after his heel turn, we seen the, the Hart Foundation, the stable, come together with Owen, Bulldog, Anvil and Brian Pullman and they would then feud with Austin for uh, a period of nineteen ninety seven. a feud that was voted as Wrestle uh, feud of the year at that point. Brett was, despite being a heel in the United States, he was a face pretty much everywhere, else. everywhere else. Um, you know, I was keen to ask you, you know, sort of reflections folk have of Brett as a heel in 1997, and Brett's 1997 could be a topic all on its own, so we are going to cover it very shortly here, but, you know, reflections, uh, well, actually, let's, let's take first reflections on the Heart Foundation as a stable, Alan, what's, what's your your thoughts and memories of that that stable? Utter
3: class, pure utter class. There's no for me. There's no real weak, weak link. Um, obviously, it was very international. The fact that you had all a Canadian, but then you had the bulldog as well. Um, I just loved it. and I just didn't really feel like there was a weak member. Every member had a role to play, and they played it perfectly. Yeah, there was. the they really. No, you can look at other stables, like probably Dx and everyone always thought, like, looking back or oh, Xbox, the weak link, Just the to be scrawny one, you, know, you look at the corporation, <laughs> you know, people, some people may be kind of like, is oh, oh, the weak one because, you know, he's not really going anywhere, but the Heart, fam, the Heart Foundation had no weak link, they were solid from top to bottom, and they played an amazing role, each and every one of them.
2: Yeah. I've just and thought like, of your double turn. Uh, when Vince McMahon was taking on uh, Bret Hart for Bret getting his revenge, and they had a lumberjack match, and it was surrounded by the Hart uh, family, and Vince had paid the Hart family to side with him, but then uh, they turned back and <laughs> formed a Bret. There was a double turn. <laughs>
1: That's a unfortunate abomination, that, that whole match. Oh yes! <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was hoping yeah. it wouldn't go, yeah, go on to that, but oh well then.
1: I planning, oddly enough, I wasn't planning to mention it at all, Quacker. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll just <laughs> shut down from now. <laughs> uh, but Alan did mention the international flavour of the, of the stable, and there was a pay-per-view at this point, In Your House Canadian Stampede, which was headlined by five and five tag match. So we had the Hart Foundation versus the team. It's you a class team, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Ken Shamrock, Goldust and the Legion of Doom. Normally they would be incredibly popular, but my God, they were booed out of the building at Canadian Stampede. Um, Derek, um, what's your thoughts and your memories of this one and, and the particular the atmosphere? At the Canadian Stampede, and when when they came
4: out, you know, when when Brett and that came out, it was it was a miraculous. You know, they were like it was like gods coming down. Back. They were heroes, you know. They were like, yeah, because obviously, anywhere that they went in the US, you know, as soon as the, the five of them came out, they were getting booed to to hell. You know, they were getting everything thrown at them and stuff like that. Whereas yeah. this time, it was a total turn, and it was. It was it was amazing to see actually because like like me and you growing up we've always been Bret Hart we've always been Hart Foundation fans so it was like ah these guys these these, these Canadian guys are alright man they they, <laughs> they get it, you know they they get they, they you know they get what we you know we get what they've what's, what's, what's they've got and it was just the, the atmosphere that night as well it was proper intense as well I remember during that um, as well you know who we get the win and then if also if. Um, it was pretty much a case of Austin and that one it was a riot. You oh my know?
1: god, they would have had to run for their lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, Brett's huge stuff. work at this time. You know, we said at the start of the show about one of the reasons Brett used to wear the sunglasses is because he wasn't confident giving promos. Well, he was cutting some really great promos at this time in quite intense audiences. I remember the time when he, he talked about uh, the shape of America. If you ever noticed, it? it looks like a toilet and folk going crazy at it and so on. <laughs> so uh, you know he was, he was having a lot oh, of such, <laughs> uh, you know those classic uh heel tactics along the way um so brett would pick up his title victory number five at SummerSlam in 1997 with the victory over the undertaker after sure michael's had undertaken the chair title number four came just after the royal rumble we were talking about at the fatal four-way pay-per-view but he would Only hold the title for one night that time, as he would drop the title to Sid the next night to set off uh, Brett and Austin, and uh, Sid the Undertaker for WrestleMania. Um, After winning the title number five, leading up to the uh, Montreal Survivor Series, Brett, despite being the champion, found himself in naturally the semi-main event slot. Um, He was feuding with the Patriot whilst. uh, Undertaker and Sean were working on top. We had the great match at Ground Zero and then we had the, the first Hell in the Cell match. And this really, this period was very much, we were on the way to Montreal. And that is where we're going to stop talking about Brett's career. Now, so much of Brett's, you know, Brett has achieved so much. We've spent, uh, you know, we've touched on the surface of a lot of his achievements this time. I would say that Brett's achievements he's achieved so much, I don't think he deserves to be overshadowed by Montreal or for Montreal to be the first thing that people think of when they think of Brett the Hitman Heart. So what I did want to do is take a moment to ask the panelists uh, you know, to pull out what you would say is Brett's career highlight or career legacy is minus Montreal. Um, so we'll, we'll go around the table, and actually, a couple of you have been touching on this already when you talked about these great matches and these great moments. But, Derek, let's start with you on this one. What's the highlight from Brett's career that you would pull out if you can leave Montreal to decide? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I think me, me you, are sort of summer where we don't think about
4: Montreal in terms of Brett, you know, the way he is, because we've obviously watched him since we were very, very young. And he's been a massive part of our wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know what what we look for in terms of wrestling. But my thing with with Brett is is most of my favourite matches, Brett's in them. Um, particularly, you know, the um, the Mister Perfect match. That's one of my favourite matches ever. Um, the Bulldog match as well was one of my favourite matches ever. And then also Owen and Brett is mm-hmm. also one of my also one of my favourite matches ever. So that's what I think about when I think of Bret Hart I think about the the heat that he got when um, when they had the you know the stuff we talk about there the USA versus Canada stuff um, as well and just how just how good he was actually in the ring Mm
1: -hmm.
4: um, as well you know he could make anybody he could make anybody look he could pretty much you know make anybody look good and it was going from the days of what we were used to was all these guys like like Hogan you know all these big Physical guys who were you know massive muscle after muscle after muscle and Brett was something different um, as well. He was just yeah you know he was he was brilliant and like you said I think he's one of the he's the best that is the best I was that ever uh, the best that ever will be in my mm-hmm. opinion.
1: Alan, uh, let's come to you next. What's the the that you would put out or the highlight that you would pull out for Brett's career as far as you're concerned?
3: Uh, well. Just regards to the Montreal because I don't I don't think of Brett when I think of I think of Sean. Because it's kind of a tainted title to him and it, and obviously we all know the fallout and the story of it, but when it comes to Brett, I just think of WrestleMania thirteen and SummerSlam at Wembley. The other two they stand out because that just showed him top his game and selling to the crowd. It just had those matches just had absolutely everything. And so that's what I think of when I think of Brett Hardy, those matches, especially growing up I was a rock fan over Austin. So just seeing Austin in blood, for his face past him, like, yeah <laughs> him, get, him, get him. You know, so, so yeah, uh, that is what I think of when it comes to Brett. Yeah.
2: Quacker. Um Allow me to take a, a bit more simpler route to this one, because when I think of Brett, like, I, I, I think of the Heart Dungeon and I think of the Heart Dynasty, the family, because they produced a lot a lot of great wrestlers and uh, not just within the family but other people like my my, my favorite of all time chris Jericho. people like that and and um, when you think of the heart dungeon like let's be honest and let's be real brett is the number one he is the guy that has come out of the dungeon and stuff so um that in itself, to, to at least come out of that, is just incredible in itself and i a agreed but for me, Brett is the number one guy and that's that's much, much more simpler route to it, if you know what I mean. That's what I think of.
1: What about you? What do you think of? There are, are great moments throughout it, SummerSlam 1991 would probably be my number one moment I wish that Brett's first title victory had happened at a big moment like that, but he didn't get. We did, didn't get there, and we'd actually have to wait for the the WrestleMania ten. I think for Brett to get that sort of proper sort of title title victory, get that moment and sunshine. But for me, eh, the, that would be number one. Brett and Piper at WrestleMania eight would be up there as well, and I, I th- the King of the Ring because he had those you know, really three really different matches and he beat them all in different ways and it just showed that you can have different you know, you have really different matches and he didn't do sort of a of lot of his normal stuff in there, but they would probably be my 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 ones. Uh I mean I think uh if I was to summarise um you know Brett's legacy for me is I think he was a he was a great wrestler. He, uh he, he'd never as far as I'm concerned, never had a bad match. I would never got fed up watching a Bret Hart match. Um, so I would say that he was relatable and believable in the way he carried himself, uh, the way he looked, his presentation, his style, the way he worked. You never really watched a match with Bret and thought, oh, no. Uh, you know, he saw the psychology, the storytelling within the matches. He was a role model. He carried, you know, when he was the world champion, you could see that he, you know, he walked a wee bit taller. He always carried the title belt on his shoulder as well because he said he wanted it to be up high. He cared about his fans, and that's one of the reasons why he was so popular international. I mean, for me, growing up, Brett the Hitman heart was and is one of my heroes. So being able to talk about his career tonight has been an, absolute, been an absolute pleasure and it's been nice to have this little walk down memory road with you guys and to be able to talk about so much of Brett's achievements. Uh, and I hope we'll be able to pick up again uh, for a part two and to pick up from Montreal onwards at, at a later date. But I think that's about all the time we have for for today, guys. So just before uh, we say thank uh, you, thank you to the panel. Uh, we've had this. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed listening and and potentially learning about the career of the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Um, and we hope that you will, if you have listened to us for the first time, that you will subscribe and stay with us and eat, sleep, suplex, so retweet. We go from talking, uh, having a show about the best that is, best there was, the best there it will be, to having a show next week, which is hosted by somebody who's the opposite of all of those things. As we have a show hosted by our very own Scott McLeod talking about ECW. Just when you wish that you could have some Kendall sticks at hand to take on Scott and his panel, then. So do check out the uh, show featuring ECW. Also, Head over to our YouTube page to check out the returning greatest of all time David Campbell coming back to the ESSR family. I much did David pay you for this intro? He, he didn't pay me anything. <laughs> I, Dave, I, I believe you. <laughs> well, it's called Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> 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 I happened to visit the restaurant that David works in earlier on today and and got amazing service and um, was very happy to talk about all the I'll go check out David's show on conspiracy theories. David could have a field day talking about uh, why Brett's title reigns were cut short or what happened at Montreal or indeed the WCW story where he gets signed to this massive big contract but Eric Bischoff wasn't convinced he was worth it. I'm not sure why you pay two and a half million quid for something that you're not sure really did was the big <laughs> start of another show. Um, but do check out the conspiracy theories on YouTube, guys. Thank you so much, Quacker. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you, mate. My pleasure. My rotten stinking brother, Derek, Thank you. Thank you, Gary. That one. Thank you so much, and we'll see you again next time here on Eat Sleep Suplex Retool.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet now proudly presents... Suplex Retweet
3: Extra! Get bonus content on WWE, AEW, NXT, WCW, Scottish and World Independent Promotions! Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple, and Android podcasting sites, as well as YouTube. Head over to suplexretweet.com now!